Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. The Asmat are an Indigenous people of Indonesian Papua with big ambitions that reach as far as the Vatican. They live on the southwest coast of Papua and are renowned for their artistic carving flair and complex life cycle rituals. Over the past five decades, the Asmat have experienced profound cultural changes as a result of their exposure to various socioeconomic, moral and aesthetic models brought by the state, the Catholic Church and the art market. What a combination. Today's guest is here to tell us more about the social changes experienced by the Asmat people and the material and ethical alternatives they are developing in response to a wide range of sociocultural, religious and ecological predicaments. Dr. Roberto Costa is a sessional academic in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Sydney and also the School of Social Sciences at Macquarie University. As an anthropologist working in Indonesia and Papua, he has published on politics, religion, ethics, materiality and human-non-human relations. His research interests also include digital activism, phenomenology and visual and sensory anthropology, the latter stemming from his prior life as a musician. Roberto, welcome to CX Stories. Hi, Natalie. Thank you for having me here. I mentioned just then that you were a musician before you entered academia. What instruments did you play and how did you go from being a musician to conducting ethnographic research in one of the most politically sensitive parts of Indonesia? Well, that's correct. In my previous life, professionally speaking, I used to work as a violinist and in the music management sector. Well, music and the violin turned out to be a springboard for me to get out of my native little village in central Italy. That environment was, for me, a little bit too claustrophobic. And thanks to music, I toured extensively overseas and lived in several countries in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. And the exposure to different cultures and my inclination towards otherness and social justice forged my interest in anthropology. So I left my artistic career and devoted myself completely to anthropology and academia. Now, as for your second question, well, I ended up doing my fieldwork in Indonesia and Papua after training in Indonesian traditional music and dance in Sulawesi, so in Indonesia. It was at that time that I discovered Papua and learned about peculiar situation with the Indonesian context. I became very interested in this topic and researched on it both at the University of Bologna, where I did my master's degree, and for a short period here at the University of Sydney at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. Where did you do your PhD? I completed my PhD last year at Macquarie University. So while I was doing my master's degree in Italy, I spent a month here in Australia. And then I went back and I spent three, four years overseas doing something else. And I came back to Australia to do my PhD. So you mentioned the peculiar situation in Papua. Obviously, you're referring to the political sensitivities around Papua. Can you tell us a little bit more about what makes Papua so interesting as an anthropologist? Well, there are several reasons. One of them being the cultural variety that we can find in Papua. 
just as these rapid changes, radical and rapid changes that have occurred in that region. And that's, for example, the case of the region where I did my fieldwork, which is the Asmat region. So in as little as 70 years, they have been colonized by the Dutch first and then entered the Indonesian state. They have become part of the Indonesian state and have gone through several processes like Christianization and lately Islamization as well. It's highly interesting from an anthropological perspective. So before we come to these different external influences that you've mentioned, their impact, I'd like to invite you to tell us about your last trip to Papua before the pandemic prevented further travel. When you took with you a violin, I wanted to ask you about the role of musical instruments as a tool of research and what happened when you showed your violin to your ASMAT interlocutors. That's an interesting one. When I started my fieldwork among the ASMAT people, I was extremely anxious about how to break the ice with my future interlocutors. But as they were artists too, I thought that showing talent of some sort might have speeded up the process of socialization with them. And I should also mention that at that time, the focus of my research was still on music. Now, I remember like the first meeting I had with them, it was under the local church's patio in the village where I did my fieldwork, the lush rainforest at sunset. So I started to explain my project, to share my ideas, and played a few notes with the violin. And interestingly, I was asked more questions about the materiality of the violin, like the kind of wood, tools to make it, etc., rather than about its sound. So I was charmed by the feedback. And that feedback, in a way, poked me to partly reconsider my research priorities. So the violin prop worked out to break the ice and helped me attune myself to the field. I love that idea of the violin helping you attune yourself to the field. Can you tell us what the ASMAT people did to your violin so that you can explain this beautiful photo that you shared with me to our listeners? Yeah, well, just before leaving the field, the last time I went to the Asmat region before the pandemic, my violin was there with me. And so I had my mentor who said, well, you know what? Your violin needs some Asmat energy, needs to be Asmatized. I said, okay, so what should I do? And just leave the violin with me for a few days. And that's what I did. The man returned the violin to me. As you can see in the photo, he practically carved very interesting symbols. Oh, that's symbolism for Asmat represents the cosmology, the way they interpret the world. That was quite a beautiful surprise. And the violin is with me. And whenever I play it, in a way, it's like breathing Asmat energy. How incredible. What a gift. So they are known for their wood carving, the Asmat people, but they're also skilled musicians and singers and storytellers. What is the role of carving and singing and telling stories in Asmat society? Yeah, so traditional wood carving and music performance and storytelling are activities integral to the Asmat cultural ethos. And from an anthropological point of view, 
their ritual practices since they allow ritual performers to reconnect with their ancestors. Also play a crucial role, sociologically speaking, social gratification. So practically, talent in these activities is the essential qualification to acquire social status together with ethics. So leadership among the Asmat and other Papuan uh, peoples as well is not based on keen relations, but on talent and ethics, which implies the moral code that regulates how to behave and relate to people, ancestors, and the environment. So in the Asmat language, there's a word. The word is chess. Sometimes it's also pronounced tes, depending on the specific location in that region. And this word encapsulates both the idea of talent and the idea of moral behavior. So talented and ethical people are called chess chui pitch. Another word, for example, for brave warriors is chess my pitch. So all these words contain the word chess. People have this talent might be compared to kind of shamans. So who use their talent to connect with the upper and underworlds and guide the community in this world. So the world in between. You've just given us a very nice introduction to the way the Asmat frame and understand themselves in the world. Can we talk now about these external influences that we touched on earlier that have converged on the Asmat since the 1950s? And these include the Indonesian state, the Catholic Church, and more recently the art market. So what has been the impact of these different influences? The impact has been imponent. All the processes I mentioned earlier in some Asmat communities have led to a kind of anomie. So, for example, people have discontinued their life-cycle rituals. That's, of course, an extreme. But more in general, what I remarked is that Asmat people feel rather disempowered. Nonetheless, I also found that despite the frustration people might experience, many Asmat are optimistic about the future. So this optimism is supported by two main factors. First, a profound confidence in their skills. And second, they are not alone in this world because of their ancestors. There's like a complex network of souls, good and evil souls, that assist them in their endeavors if they behave ethically. So both factors entangled. Individuals, in a way, depend on the relationship between them other than human entities. It is crucial for Asmat people to respect and perform rituals in order to foster this optimism. I think one of the best examples of how this confidence manifests is this somewhat utopian project, namely the proposal to establish an Indigenous museum of the Asmat in the Vatican. Can you tell us more about this project and what it says about Asmat responses to experiences of disempowerment? Well, as I mentioned, I found that Asmat people are endowed with a strong sense of hope, which is grounded in realism. 
this hopeful realism is torn between, on the one hand, the solid confidence in their skills, ethnic pride, and this also confidence, conviction that the supernatural world will assist them. On the other hand, there's also an awareness of the socio-political conditions featuring, for example, discrimination, isolation, but also opportunities. So I'd say that Asmat people understand that certain forces are jeopardizing the cultural, physical, and environmental existence while impeding them to compete fairly in the Indonesian and global arenas. But at the same time, they also understand that change is not all dark. The proposal of the museum consists in having an Asmat place in space, in the epicenter of the world religion, because I did my research in a community of Catholic Asmat. So this museum should serve to emancipate them socially by, for example, learning foreign languages, traveling, and uh, carrying out the rituals abroad, and establishing new rituals as well. And it would also rebalance the relations with the Catholic Church, whose mission and churches were established in the Asmat land without material reciprocation. Well, in fact, an Asmat mission in the Vatican land doesn't exist yet. Now, that's clear that this project arises from their desires of social emancipation and the opportunity of having me in the field. This proposal is in a way, the result of the typical intersubjective dynamics happening in the field. This is also a clear example of the ambitious ideas that emerge when working with disempowered people. And people in Papua can be particularly creative. Yeah, just to be clear, when you talk about the intersubjectivities that do occur in the field when you're conducting anthropological research, are you specifically referring to your own positionality as an Italian here? Yes, for them it was like a new experience to have a relationship with someone coming from what they term their holy land in their geography, Rome, the Vatican, Jerusalem, so all of them Tanasuchi, holy land. What an interesting experience as a researcher for you. Did that take you by surprise? Well, for sure I didn't know that I was the first Italian to go to that place. In a way, the fact of me being in Papua was something a bit surprising, not just for my interlocutors, also for other people. So now, why have you ended up here in Papua? You're Italian. Especially for them, at the beginning, it was a bit difficult because since I come from central Italy, they thought that I was also somehow related to the Vatican. Maybe they suspected that I was a Vatican spy or something of this sort. So I had really to position myself to try also to distance myself from that institution, also in order to gain more insights and to do my, my research. I would imagine that part of that was also about managing expectations as well and managing the expectations that you were in a position to go home and actually realize this proposed project. And so I wanted to ask you about that. Is there any possibility that this project will eventuate? You know, who's driving it? Is it purely speculative? And, and does it even matter? Is the concept just as important as its actual realisation? 
The first time I was told about building an Asmat Museum in the Vatican, I must be honest, I had to cool down my interlocutor's enthusiasm in explaining the hurdles of realizing something so ambitious. The point was that, as you said, I felt in a way the weight of their expectations and did not want to disappoint them. However, I strongly believe that uh, the end of utopias is not necessarily their realization. I mean, in the here and now. Now, I don't want to sound too philosophical, but if we absolutize the here and now as the only plane to which everything should teleologically tend, the risk, I think, can be that of mutilating our imagination. And disempowering these possibilities that we as humans are in doubt, and that still, so far, distinguish ourselves from, say, AI machines. Now, one should also understand that utopias emerge at the intersection of endogenous and exogenous desires and limitations. So, That's why I think that my Asmat's utopias projects are relevant also for their ability to deal with transcendent and immanent materialistic projects. So what is interesting about all these ambitious projects is that, again, they are not flights of fancy. There's also something concrete, material. Yeah, I think it's crucial for evidencing both the problems afflicting these people and detecting grassroots solutions to redress socio-political inequalities. Yeah, and talk about these other less ambitious projects, such as the increasing inclusion of ancestral weapons in church altars. And you say that they express innovative grassroots forms of governance that criticise the status quo from within. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, sure. Thank you for this question. So this project speaks volumes about the different kinds of utopian projects. Previous one, the museum one, was particularly uh, utopistic, utopian. This one refers to a project less ambitious in the sense that some of the objects that have been added to the local church altar already adorn the altar. Now, these objects are ritual objects used for specific rituals, including headhunting raids. And in the Asmat language, they are also called echopo, objects that make great. Now, this project, we might also say that it was less ambitious because of the local priest's openness to inculturation namely the the inclusion of local elements into Catholic liturgy. Of course, if the authority collaborates, things are easier. Now, to address your question, the exhibition of these objects aims at restoring and foregrounding pre-Christian values while engaging dialectically with Christian ones. For example, indigenous virtues of courage, respect, prestige and pride are integrated into an overlap with Christian ones, for example, of sacrifice, humility, repentance. So people attending the church can see 
all these objects together and reflect on the complexities of this juxtaposition. And this also applies to the museum. So the attempt is to restructure consolidated knowledge from within. That is to challenge the exclusionary principles and uh, pervasive ideologies inherent in uh, those institutions that uh, are a kind of buffers the Asmat uh, run into in their attempt to re-empower themselves and uh, at the same time uh, satisfy the ambitions of their ancestors. Roberto, your research offers us deep insights into Asmat utopian material and pragmatic responses to reality. What are the wider implications or significance of your research? My research contributes to the scholarship that prioritizes alternatives. And alternatives, we might say, that are the fruit of cultural difference, material ecological conditions, and critical thinking. So alternatives can concern different spheres, such as environmental management and resource extraction, ethics, spirituality, social organization. So my study scrutinizes some indigenous material alternatives that refer to these spheres. And again, they are material in the sense that they are conceptualized and expressed in material terms. And they also presuppose the association between human and non-human actors. Like the ultimate goal is to propound a new conceptualization of these concrete forms of alternatives, of utopias, to consider them as an analytical prism through which to identify the roots of and grassroots solutions to current issues at stake and establish parallels uh, cross-culturally. It's such an interesting project. You've talked to us about ethics and utopia and materiality these creative ways that Asmat have of telling stories, of sharing their moral values through carving and singing. If we want to learn more about your project, are you planning to write it up as a book? Is that what's next? Are you returning to Papua? Where can we find out more? Clearly, the pandemic has been quite uh, disruptive (laughs) for this kind of research. I do intend to go back to Indonesia in the near future, if circumstances allow. In the meantime, finalizing a couple of articles. So my engagement continues with my work and publications. And I'm also reworking the research material to make it into a book. We will look forward to that. Thank you for sharing with us these glimpses of everyday creativity and hope in Indonesian Papua. You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SIAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show.